Well, I confess to you that I spent a portion of my week this week searching different translations of the Bible for the passage that we are about to read this morning, a passage that may be a little more, a translation that may be a little more uh, seemly or delicate. I found a couple of translations that would have accomplished that purpose, but then the question becomes, but wait, why aren't you reading out of the Pew Bible as you do every week? What's the problem? Well, I was reminded that sin is the problem. You know, God created us to be naked and unashamed. Do you know that? That's what scripture says in Genesis, that God created us to be naked and unashamed. Sin is what brings shame to us. Sin is what causes us to want to to cover up. So when there is awkwardness, when there is embarrassment, when there is shame, it's a reminder of how sin truly has corrupted our world. It's corrupted our thinking. It's corrupted our behavior. But we can use that awkwardness and we can use that shame whenever we experience it to remind us how far we are from the holiness of God. How far we've fallen from that beautiful, open, free relationship that God intended to have with those who he created in his image. So our shame should cause us to long for Christ, the one who takes away our shame and makes us fit for the presence of a holy God. It should make us long for the sanctifying work of the Holy Spirit. It should make us pray that our lives more and more would take on an aura of holiness. That our lives more and more would look less like the lives of those around us who don't know Christ. That our lives would display more and more the gospel and be evidence of the good work of God in us and through us. And then we can pray that God would take our lives that he's transforming and sanctifying And making more and more holy to make a difference in this world for Jesus' sake. I know that's a lot to hope for. A lot to hope that the Lord would accomplish. But I know this, the the Spirit of God is mighty. And the Word of God is powerful. So we're going to trust Him for great things as we come to His Word this morning. You're going to find it in Deuteronomy chapter 23. So if you have your Bibles open, I invite you to turn to that passage. If you don't have a Bible with you, yes, there is one in the pew from which I will be reading. So when you found Deuteronomy chapter 23, I'm going to ask you to stand as we hear read together the word of the living God. You're wondering what it is. Well, here it is. The word of the Lord. No one who has been emasculated by crushing or cutting may enter the assembly of the Lord. No one born of a forbidden marriage nor any of his descendants may enter the assembly of the Lord, even down to the tenth generation. No Ammonite or Moabite or any of his descendants may enter the assembly of the Lord, even down to the tenth generation. For they did not come to meet you with bread and water on your way when you came out of Egypt. And they hired Balaam, son of Beor, from Pethor in Aram, Nahiram, to pronounce a curse on you. However, the Lord your God would not listen to Balaam, but turned the curse into a blessing for you, because the Lord your God loves you, 
Do not seek peace or good relations with them as long as you live. Do not abhor an Edomite, for he's your brother. Do not abhor an Egyptian, because you lived as an alien in his country. The third generation of children born to them may enter the assembly of the Lord. When you are encamped against your enemies, keep away from everything impure. If one of your men is unclean because of a nocturnal emission, he is to go outside the camp and stay there. But as evening approaches, he is to wash himself, and at sunset he may return to the camp. Designate a place outside the camp where you can go to relieve yourself. As part of your equipment, have something to dig with. And when you relieve yourself, dig a hole and cover up your excrement. For the Lord, your God, moves about in your camp to protect you and to deliver your enemies to you. Your camp must be holy so that he will not see among you anything indecent and turn away from you. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for your word, for all of it. Father, no part of our lives are hidden from you. and We thank you for that as well. So we pray now that as we come to your word this morning, uh, that you, Spirit of God, would teach us, give us understanding. I pray that you would increase our knowledge and understanding and experience of your holiness and that we would seek to be the holy people that you have called us to be. For we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you. You may be seated. So we come to chapter 23 this morning. Chapters 23 through 26 actually conclude this long section of the law at which we've been looking, which began back in Deuteronomy chapter 12. And we mentioned then that this law, chapters 12 through 26, take the form of a sermon. Moses is preaching to these people. They've gathered on the plains of Moab. They're ready now to enter into the promised land that God is giving them. And through this sermon and through the laws it contained, these people will know how to live life well in the land that God has given to them. I don't know about you, but I want that for my life. I want to be reminded all the time how to live my life well. I want to know how to eliminate the static from my life, the confusion and the chaos. I might not always like what I hear, but I always need to hear it anyway. And so do you. So as we come to this passage this morning, the first thing that we understand that we need to do, if we'll live our lives well, if our lives will function as they ought to, is to be worshiping people. Look at the end of verse 1. And you'll see there the phrase that you heard repeated throughout all these verses. The phrase is the assembly of the Lord. And this phrase is very specific in the Hebrew, and it refers to God's people when they have gathered together to worship him. So it's a term much more narrow than the nation of Israel as a whole. whole. It refers to God's people who have gathered to worship him. And that is our first and our highest priority in life. And that is worshiping God. As our catechism's first answer to the first question reminds us, what is man's chief end? Man's chief end is to glorify God 
and enjoy him forever. We worship the Lord. We're just following what Jesus said and what Deuteronomy chapter 6 said as well. Jesus says to love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, with all your strength. That is the first and greatest commandment. You and I are called to be worshipers. And so we've got to to pause and ask ourselves how committed we are to worshiping the Lord. And I don't mean worshiping alone in your quiet time, though that's important. I don't mean worshiping in your car with the music cranked up and you're singing at the top of your lungs. That's important to do as long as your windows are rolled up. I mean worshiping together with the family of God, week by week. That's what God has in mind here, Sabbath by Sabbath. So as a general rule for our lives and as a a rhythm for our lives, listen, nothing should take priority over worship, week after week after week. Sometimes I think because we sit in pews, or chairs for worship, we, we get the wrong view of, of what it is. Because we, we sit, it makes us view ourselves as passive receivers instead of active givers. We think of ourselves as an audience. And if you add a coffee bar outside the sanctuary, and if you, you offer some donuts and have an usher there to greet you, it, it almost has the feeling of, come on in, find a seat, and enjoy the show. Listen, I know what I'm talking about. We started this church in a theater, but the bar at our theater didn't serve coffee. It served liquor. When we worship, we are not an audience. We are not an audience. When we worship, we are the performers. God is the audience. We wait in worship. But we wait for the Spirit of God to come and to reveal to us afresh and anew and perhaps in ways that we've never seen before the glory and the majesty of God. Psalm 40 says, Many, not few, many, Lord, my God, are the wonders you have done, the things you planned for us. None can compare with you. Were I to speak and tell of your deeds, they would be too many to declare. You see, God has already performed for us. And now we respond to the wonders that he has performed by worshiping him. Sometimes I feel like we are like the people who frustrated Jesus. People came to him repeatedly in scripture and they said this to him, give us a sign, give us a sign. What sign will you give us that we may believe you? What will you do for us? The gospel of Mark tells of an occasion when the Pharisees asked for a sign and scripture says that Jesus sighed deeply. Why does this generation ask for a sign? Truly, I tell you, no sign will be given it. And then he left them. He got back into the boat and crossed to the other side. See, sometimes we come to worship, even this hour, in this place, with our own demands. We demand something of the Lord. Do something 
for me, Lord. Show me a sign. But the question is, what more can the Lord do than he has already done? What more could he do than he has already done for us? This time, worship time, is time for you and me as God's people to corporately give back to the Lord. It's our time to love the Lord, to be joyful before the Lord, to praise the Lord, to come before him with humble thankfulness for all he has already done for us and all that we know that he will continue to do for us because we are much, much loved sons and daughters of God. Worship has got to be a primary goal in our lives, a primary activity. That doesn't even need to be questioned. When you and I worship together regularly, the rest of our lives, the remainder of our lives, our lives between those times of worship will work much better. We do need to question, however, who may worship? As we read and sang this morning, who can ascend the hill of the Lord? We've already looked in the book of Deuteronomy in several passages that speak about strangers or what are called aliens or foreigners that are going to live among God's people. The promised land is not going to be a homogeneous unit made up only of Israelites. People from other countries, people with different cultures, people with different ways of worship will live among God's people. It's going to be a community of a mixed population. So, living in a community of a mixed population, who may worship the Lord? Something I like to do that you would never like to do, but I'm a preacher, so I'm weird. I like to go to the websites of old historic churches, usually churches that are in old towns, And I like to go to their website to see if they're still even functioning as a church and and what kind of congregation now inhabits those churches. And so this is what I read on many, many websites. We are an open and inviting community. All are welcomed here. We joyfully welcome all mankind. We are an open church that embraces all people. Everyone is cheerfully welcome to share in our worship and sacraments. This one I found on the website of a 17th century Puritan meeting house. Been worshiping there since the 1600s. Our congregation encourages personal spiritual growth through worship, engagement, and service to others. We do not require adherence to a specific creed. We support each individual's unique search for truth and meaning. We cherish diversity of religious backgrounds, racial and cultural identities or backgrounds, ethnicities, national origins, ages, ranges of ability, sexual orientations, gender expressions, financial means, educations, and political perspectives. We welcome all to share in congregational life. So I was wondering if we could make our current technology retroactive, say by three or four thousand years. And I wonder what would be posted on the website for the temple of God. 
you know, how, how do these churches define all? And how do they define welcome? If by all are welcome, they mean that every person without exception is welcome to their church to hear the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ, to hear that salvation is through Christ alone, by faith alone. If that's what they mean, yes, all are welcome. And I hope that Redeemer Presbyterian Church in that sense will always be a welcoming congregation. But if by all are welcome, they mean that whoever wants to join their worshiping family of faith and be part of their community, regardless of how they live or what they believe, I have a problem with that, but it's not my problem. It's, it's a problem that God has with that. And we hear it in these verses this morning. According to these verses, there are those that God says may not worship with the community of faith. That's what he says. There are some who may not worship, who are not welcomed. Some are excluded. So look in verse 1. The first exclusion says, No man who has been emasculated by crushing or cutting may enter the assembly of the Lord. This prohibition refers to to men who had been castrated as part of a religious ceremony and a religious uh, ritual of Canaanite worship. Mutilation, this kind of mutilation was part of their worship. And these guys were all bought in. You might say they were on staff with the worship of that place. They agreed with it. They gave themselves to it. And they said, here in our body is the mark of our devotion to this kind of worship. They recognized and they bowed before other gods. So we can say, all are welcome, regardless of religious background. But God says, what? You may not bring your religious practices into my worship. Similarly, look in verse 2. No one born of a forbidden marriage nor any of his descendants may enter the assembly of the Lord. The best scholars all agree that this prohibition was for the children who were born to cult prostitutes. Very common, cult prostitution. And so these children were conceived in this religious worship of these pagan gods. They were born in that culture. And when they were born, they were dedicated to the gods in whose presence they were conceived. God says, these are not permitted to worship with the family of God. Purity of worship. Purity of worship. That's what God is emphasizing here. And God is excluding any who may introduce pagan rituals or beliefs as part of the worship of God. And listen, here's what we lose sight of. God makes these exclusions because he is a good and loving God. Worship, worship is the way to God for these people. And so if that way is blocked, if that way becomes overgrown, if that path to God is rerouted in a different direction because the influence of pagan worship brought into the worship of the holy God, the way to God will be lost. And all, though they were welcomed with open arms, will perish. 
as we've seen over and over, God's concern is for the community. In the Old Testament, it's the nation of Israel. In the New Testament, it's the church. God seeks to protect the whole. We as Americans, as I say week by week almost, we've got to fight this individualistic mindset with which we are born. It's the individual against the whole. God seeks to protect the whole. And he's not going to welcome individuals to bring their notions that are not influenced by the truth into the worshiping community. They and their ideas are excluded from the worship of the holy God. The third exclusion. Look in verse 3. No Ammonite or Moabite or any of his descendants may enter the assembly of the Lord even down to the tenth generation. Why? The Ammonites did not come to meet God's people with bread and water as they journeyed from Egypt in slavery to the promised land. They refused to bring them bread and water. What does that translate into when you are traveling through the desert? If you don't have bread and you don't have water, what does that equal? Death. So the Ammonites stood opposed to this plan of God. No, we don't approve of the God's plan. We, don't, we will not support God's plan. We would rather see you die first. So, of course, people who stand opposed to God and to his plan and to his truth should not find welcome in the worship of God. The Moabites were also excluded from worship because they act, actively sought to curse God's people. Their king hired Balaam one of the most famous prophets of the day. He paid him handsomely. Come, come and put a curse on these people. If you put a a curse on them, perhaps I will be able to overcome them. Why should God welcome into his community of worship those who actively seek to curse and destroy his people? As it happened shortly after the event with Balaam, Scripture tells us that the men of Israel began to indulge in sexual immorality with the Moabite women who invited them to their sacrifices of their gods. And the people of Israel ate and bowed down before these gods. Listen, the pull away from God, the pull away from God, the pull to worship self, the pull to satisfy self, the pull to govern self, it's strong, it's strong. In all of our lives. And so how good of God to protect his people. And the purity of worship. And the pathway into his presence by excluding these people from worship. Who would in fact reroute the worship of God. The final exclusion is toward the Edomites and the Egyptians. Their exclusion is not permanent. It's only to the third generation. The Edomites, because they were brothers descended from Jacob's brother Esau. The Egyptians, because even though they had enslaved God's people, had always offered shelter in a time of need. Abraham went there and found food in a time of famine. Jacob went there when his son Joseph was ruler in Egypt. And there the family was protected. And there in Egypt, God used it as an incubator to to grow his people into nation status, numerically speaking. And so if the Egyptians find residence among them by the third generation, it would be apparent if if their desire was to worship the one and only true and living God. And so they are admitted into the worshiping family of God. 
So even here, before they entered the promised land, the possibility of inclusion of people from other countries into the worshiping community of faith, it demonstrates that ultimately the worshiping community is a spiritual community. Now, let's look at one final demonstration of the purity and holiness of God. Will you look with me in verse 14? For the Lord your God moves about in your camp to protect you and to deliver your enemies to you. Your camp must be holy so that he will not see among you anything indecent and turn away from you. So in this verse, you see, we've moved out of the temple and we've moved into the military camp, but we never move away from a pure and holy God. The psalmist says that we can't get away from him. If I go to the heavens, you're there. If I go to the depths, you're there. If I go to the far side of the sea, even there, you are with me. If God is present then, moving among the tents of a military camp, then certainly he's moving among his people in worship in the temple. If God requires cleanness in the military camp, how much more so in the people who worship him? God cares for these soldiers. The Middle East is a hot place, please imagine. So he puts sanitation standards in place so that disease will not spread and grow among these men. God is protecting them. What must be done must be done outside the camp. And even what is done outside the camp must be covered. Look, even in this most universal and daily occurrence of life, if you're eating your prunes, you can laugh, relax. (laughs) The holiness of God, the purity of God, that's what's highlighted. As verse 14 puts it, God must not see among you anything indecent. Now that's a humbling statement, isn't it? Think about it. God must not see among you anything that is indecent. Humbling, probably a little bit humiliating for us as we think about our lives. But all of life, daily life, life in the temple, life in the military camp, must be ordered rightly and lived rightly before a holy God. These are vivid images that God puts before us this morning. Images that emphasize his holiness. Images that radically reject the worship of all other gods. Images that emphasize that people who are in the presence of God must be holy. Each exclusion highlights that no one may bring their idols into the worship of God. God and God alone must be worshipped. We're not allowed to bring human philosophies or human wisdom into the worship of God. God's truth and His truth alone is what's to be proclaimed and obeyed. 
each permission that's granted into the worship of God highlights that ultimately welcome and inclusion into the worship of God is based on faith and faith alone. All are welcome. All are welcome as worshiping members of a community of faith who acknowledge God, Yahweh, as the one and only true and living God. One of the most beautiful stories in Scripture is the story of Ruth. I don't have time to tell you that story, but you can go home and read the story of Ruth in the the, the book of Ruth. Ruth was a Moabite. She was a Moabite. She should have been excluded from the worship of God because she was a Moabite, but Ruth loved the God of Israel. So what happens? Ruth becomes the great-grandmother of David, the greatest king of Israel. David, the king through whom Jesus, the Messiah, will come. And so here, here is a glimpse of the grace of God. Here is a glimpse of the gospel that's coming. Ruth, a Moabite in the family tree of Jesus. How wrong the world is. How wrong our world is to portray God as harsh and narrow and unkind and cruel, excluding people from worship. Please turn to Isaiah 56. Isaiah 56. This is the heart of God. Isaiah 56, I'm going to start reading in verse 3. It says, Let no foreigner who has joined himself to the Lord say, The Lord will surely exclude me from his people. And let not any eunuch complain, I am only a dry tree. For this is what the Lord says to the eunuchs who keep my Sabbaths, who choose what pleases me and hold fast to my covenant. To them, I will give within my temple and its walls a memorial and a name better than sons and daughters. I will give them an everlasting name that they will not be cut off. And foreigners who bind themselves to the Lord to serve him, to love the name of the Lord, to worship him, all who keep the Sabbath without desecrating it and who hold fast to my covenant, these I will bring to my holy mountain and give them joy in my house of prayer. Their burnt offerings and sacrifices will be accepted on my altar for my house will be called a house of prayer for all nations. The sovereign Lord declares, he who gathers the exiles of Israel, I will gather still others to them beside those already gathered. That is the heart of our God. In both his inclusions and exclusions to the worshiping community, God is establishing his holiness and he's preparing us for Jesus. If access 
to the presence of God. Listen and think. If access to the presence of God is not denied to anyone, if God has no standard of holiness, if it's true that all may come, regardless of what they believe and regardless of how they live, then who needs Jesus? If God isn't holy, if those who worship him are not required to be holy, then who needs Jesus? Why did he come at all? And why should he have suffered death on a cross? But God is holy. And if any one of us, even in this room, will ever enter into his presence, it will only be because Jesus has cleaned us up. Because we've come to him and said, wash me, Lord, I I'm not clean. In my life, I have made you look on unclean things that I've done. In my life, I have made you listen to unclean, hurtful, harmful, irreverent words that I have spoken. Lord, I've made you listen to me spout spout out my ideas as truth for living and share those with others. Lord, I've made you look upon a compassionless heart. Like the Ammonites, I've failed to offer a piece of bread or a cup of water to those who need it. Lord, I've made you watch me live my life for my own glory and for my own gain. Lord, I am not fit to be in your presence. Forgive me, Lord, through Jesus. Now we are to the part where all are welcome. Because when we repent of our sins, we are forgiven and we find welcome into the presence of God. You cannot find that welcome outside of Jesus. I'm going to say that again. Because there may be some here this morning who don't believe that. Scripture tells us you cannot find that welcome into the presence of God outside of Jesus. I don't care what a church puts on its website. Entrance into the worship of the one and only true and living God can come only through Jesus. And is that not the very point of the curtain that was torn in two? When Jesus finally died on the cross, when he committed his spirit into the hands of his father, in that moment when he breathed his last, the curtain in the temple, the temple where worship had been taking place for centuries, the curtain in that temple that separated the Holy of Holies, the dwelling place of God on earth from everybody else, that curtain of separation, when Jesus had finally paid the price for sin, was torn in two from top to bottom so that in that moment, access to God was open to all. It was open to all who would enter through Jesus. Access to God through Christ. That's always been God's plan. It's always been what he's 
been preparing the world for. I love this part. Think about when, when Jesus was born. Shepherds were not permitted to worship in the temple of God. They were unclean. Who were the first people to hear the good news of the birth of Christ? Who? Who? Shepherds. Prostitutes. They weren't allowed to the worship of God. But Jesus forgave the many sins of the woman who was most likely a a prostitute who washed Jesus' feet with her tears and anointed his feet with oil. Jesus forgave her. The lame were not permitted to enter into the temple of God. But who did Peter and John encounter at the gate outside of the temple on their way in? A lame man. And they healed him. And where did that lame man go? He got up and he went where? Into the temple, Scripture says. Walking and leaping and praising God. God told Philip, go to that deserted desert road. Why am I going there? Philip didn't know. But when he got there, who did he encounter? What? A eunuch. Yes, a eunuch. Sitting in his chariot. Reading Scripture, though he was not allowed to worship. Didn't understand the scripture he was reading. So he said, Philip, come up and explain it to me. And what did Philip do? He shared the good news of Jesus Christ. The eunuch believed. The eunuch was baptized. And the eunuch went on his way rejoicing. And the spirit of God miraculously took Philip away. Look what God did. Supernaturally. So that a eunuch could enter into the presence of God. Moabites. Shepherds. The lame. Eunuchs prostitutes, all entering the kingdom of God. See, that's why I said this is the good part. Yes, all are welcome, but only through Jesus. It's the power of the cross. It can make unholy people fit for the presence of the one and only true and living God. So here's the reality. The reality is that some will be excluded from the presence of God. Those who do not come through Jesus, Scripture is clear about this, and so I'm saying that we do no one any favor by suggesting otherwise. Our affirmation of someone else's life may make them feel better about themselves for the moment, but our affirmation on their lives cannot help them eternally. Only God's affirmation can. We can smile on someone's life. No matter what they believe or how they live their lives. And our smile might make them feel better for the moment. But it's only the smile of God on them that will help them eternally. We can say to others, all are welcome. All are welcome. But it's only the welcome of the Lord that really matters. Come unto me, Jesus says. Come unto me, all who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. So you and I need to live holy lives before God. We need to live pure lives before him. That's how our lives work best. We've got to be people who long to and so therefore structure our lives so that we can worship our holy God.
That's how life works best. And then in worship, we are inspired as we see the glory and the greatness of God. Inspired to go and tell others the truth about our holy God and the power of the cross that can make them fit to enter into the presence of the Lord. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, as always, we are thankful for your word. We thank you for the truth that you teach us through your word. And Lord, sometimes it's so difficult for us because your truth collides with our culture. And Lord, that's certainly what's happened this morning. Your truth, the fact that there are those that you excluded from your worship based on how they live, based on what they believe, is so offensive to us. Lord, our culture tells us to tolerate all people, to accept all people people, no matter what. Lord, I pray that you will help us love people more than that, or that we would truly be the loving people by being brave enough to tell them your truth, that they need forgiveness of sin. They need to be right with you. They need to live forever in your presence. And that will only happen through faith in Christ. Father, take away our fear or our shame that we may feel from proclaiming that message. Make us bold and brave. Help us to just deflect the ridicule that will come our way the anger that will come our way from people who are offended that we would suggest such a thing. But Lord, it's true. You are God. There is no other. And this is what you have said to us. This is what you have provided for us. Hope in Jesus Christ. So we're so thankful for you, Lord Jesus. We're so thankful for your work on the cross. We're so thankful for the power of the cross that cleanses us and forgives us and makes us fit to be in your presence both now and forever. So thank you. Thank you. Amen.